So Grace tells another story, right? Those of you who are listening uh, to us by podcast this morning, you didn't get to experience the great worship time that we just had and a great song that uh, the uh, David Hampton and his band just led us in uh, called Grace Tells Another Story. That's the beauty of grace is that it tells another story that even though the world says everything is hopeless, uh, too far gone, uh, Grace says, no, that's not the case. There's nobody that's outside, no marriage that's outside uh, of the reach of God's grace. If you're listening to us by podcast, you also didn't get to watch uh, the video that we just saw about a couple's marriage that started with the best intentions. And uh, somewhere along the way, it got off track and was headed to certain divorce until at the last minute, God came in and did something in both spouses' lives that allowed uh, their marriage to be spared. Theirs is really not an uncommon story, is it? It's fair to say, I think, that every marriage probably experiences uh, something like this, maybe not to that extent, maybe not to the point where uh, you're ready for divorce. Maybe maybe that is the case uh, with your marriage. But every marriage starts with high expectations, and every marriage starts uh, with the best of intentions, but at some point it runs into the unyielding and unbending, steel-reinforced concrete wall of reality at some point, right? And some marriages hit that wall and they crumble in divorce. By the way, I want to say something. That's not always because of both spouses, by the way. You know, there's there's this idea that some people have that any time divorce happens, it's always because both spouses failed. You know, that's not always true. Sometimes it's largely, sometimes divorce is largely or even totally one-sided. It's not always two people's fault. Some marriages hit that wall of reality and they crumble in divorce. Some marriages kind of come to an uneasy truce and they stay together but without any real intimacy, just like, you know, they're, they're living like they're roommates. And then there are those who recognize that their only hope, the only hope to heal the baggage in their marriage and the only hope to heal the self-centeredness that exists in every marriage is a laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. And those marriages can become all that God intends them to be. We're in the last, the, the last sermon today in a series that we've been doing called New Marriage, Same Spouse. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to answer uh, your questions on marriage. So anything that you have asked us throughout this series, we're going to take the time to try to answer as many of those questions as we possibly can next Sunday. So this is the last sermon in this series. So what I wanted to do this morning as we start this off, before we go any further, I want to give you uh, a little pop quiz to make sure that you've been learning and that you've been following along through this series. So here's what I'd like for you to do. First of all, I'd like for you to take your phone out with me. Take your cell phone out, everybody. I know you have them because I hear them every week. Take your cell phone out, okay? Go ahead, take it out. And I want you to go, I want you to pretend like you're going to text somebody, okay? So just go to wherever you go on your phone. Like on my iPhone, it's the messages section. I want you to go there. Like you're going to text somebody. And uh, up in the section that it says to, I want you to be ready. I'll show you in just a minute. We're going to give you some instructions about who you're going to text to. And then you're going to text a particular answer in just a moment to my first question. Okay? And I'm going to give you an easy first question on this pop quiz. Okay? Here's, this is for the guys. This, This first question is for guys only. If you're watching the NCAA championship game tomorrow night, And your wife asks you, go ahead and put that up here if you guys would. If your wife asks you to help her with laundry, the correct response is, what did you do all day? My mom never needed my dad's help. 
or sure, how about I do it from now on? So you have those three choices, guys. Now, here's what you do. Go up there to where it says two, and I want you to type in 22333, okay? And then I want you down in the message part, I want you to give the answer. Is it really, no help, or partner? Okay, and we're going to tabulate the results. We're going to see how you guys do on this pop quiz. We're going to see how the men are doing, okay? So right now, uh, partner, you guys are doing well. Really is kind of going down. No help. Okay. Okay, some of you need more help than I'm able to give you in this series. I just want to say that right now, okay? But most of you got it right. Okay, um, we're going to go to the second question. Here's the set. This is an all skate, this one, okay? It's for everybody. The main problem in any marriage, okay, we've covered this in this series. The main problem in any marriage is, is it Oprah, Dr. Phil, sermon series about marriage, or is it self-centeredness? Which one of those is the correct answer? Go to 22333, and you can give your answer, okay? How are we doing? We've, we've, no, we've covered this in this series, so I want to make sure you get this right. Thank you that nobody's answering Jeff K. Okay. This is either my wife... Or it's one of my sons. Okay, you guys got that for the most part. Very good. Good job. Okay. Third, uh, here's, the, here's the third question, and this is the last one because you guys are doing really well. So I want, I want to see if you can get this one. From which of these can you best discern God's design for marriage? A, Cosmopolitan Magazine. B, Kim Kardashian's Guide to a Lasting Marriage. C, Justin Bieber Songs. Or D, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. You text your answer and let's see what we got. The Biebs. Seriously? And Cosmo Mag. All right, you guys give yourselves a hand. You guys did pretty well on that pop quiz. Good job. I'm proud of you. Thanks for, thanks for learning throughout this series. Uh, speaking of Ephesians 5, 21 uh, to 33, let's go to that passage one last time. And we're going to read this passage through again uh, from Ephesians chapter 5. So turn in your Bible uh, to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, next week, as I said, I'm going to be answering your questions. Let me just kind of tell you what's going to happen, though, as you're turning to Ephesians 5. I just want to tell you what's going to go on for the next couple of weeks. Uh, so next week, answering your questions about marriage. The week after that is Easter, and I'm going to be doing a talk that, that week called The Trauma of Grace. And I would just, in, just encourage you to invite your friends and, and uh, family members, co-workers to come with you. It'll be a great service, and we'll speak right to the issue of grace. And then um, the week after the Easter, we're going to start a new four-week series that I think is going to be very unique. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I think, I think it's going to be challenging to some of you. And it's going to be called City Church at the Movies. And we're going to analyze four of the best picture nominees from uh, this past year's Oscars. And we're going to analyze them from a biblical perspective. We're not, we're not going to beat them up. That's not the purpose. We're going, to, we're going to find what's redemptive in those movies, and we're going to find what we would say, yeah, we don't agree with. But we're, we're going to analyze those movies, four of the best picture nominees uh, from this past year's Oscars. And I'll tell you more about that uh, in the weeks ahead. Okay, let's read one last time. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to start reading at verse 21. 
Uh, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A few weeks ago, I made the point, as you read this text, and it's, it's, it's hard really to miss it, that Paul keeps moving, as he, as he writes about husbands and wives and marriage, he keeps flipping back and forth between marriage and Christ's love uh, for the church and Christ's relationship with the church. And in fact, he even says it in verse 31. He says, he says for, a, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, he says something very odd, at least on the surface. He says, this is a profound mystery. Actually, a better translation is, this is a mega mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. You can see there that he, he again, he, he flips back and forth between marriage and Christ's relationship with the church. I don't know if you noticed that or not as you were reading the text. But on the surface, it's very mysterious in and of itself that Paul says here that marriage is a mystery. You might be inclined to think that Paul is using this word mystery like it's a throwaway word. That is sort of in the same way that you might say, uh, in sort of a little exasperation sometimes, you might go, it's a mystery, mystery to me why I ever married that man. Or it's a mystery to me why I ever married that woman. It's a mystery to me how anybody ever stays married. That that might be the way that you think about it. But that's not what Paul was doing. That's not the case here. The word mystery is is a very significant, uh, very specific word. And it's not really used very frequently in the New Testament at all. But it is used six different times in the book of Ephesians alone. And when it's used in Ephesians... It refers to something that I promise you, when you first hear it, you'll think, well, that doesn't have anything to do at all with marriage. It refers to, this word mystery refers, every time Paul uses it in the book of Ephesians, it refers to the manner, listen to this, it refers to the manner in which Christ's death on the cross destroyed the hostility that existed uh, between Jews and Gentiles, and how Christ's death on the cross brought them together as one in Christ. And so he says it's a mystery, this, this whole thing about how Christ's death on the cross brought Jews and Gentiles together. He, he says it's a mystery in the sense that this had never been thought of. It had never been heard about or signaled in the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. It's kind of a secret surprise of God's. And you're asking, what in the world could that possibly have to do with marriage, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're thinking. Well, this Jews, Gentiles brought together in one in Christ. What in the world does that have to do with marriage? Well, if you'll stick with me for just a minute, I think you'll see that Paul's right, that this is a very profound 
uh, mystery. And you, I think you'll see why Paul sees this reciprocal relationship between marriage and Christ's relationship with his church. Just stick with me here. Let me, let me just explain this. Just hang with me for a couple of minutes, okay? Here we go. When most people, uh, when most people look at the world, you probably see the world as having a number of different races. Like you look at the world and you say, okay, there's whites, there's, there's, there's blacks, there's Asians, there's Hispanics, etc., etc. But the Bible declared that the world really just had two kinds of people. Jews and then non-Jews or Gentiles. Okay? The Jews always thought of the Gentiles, which by the way would be most people in this room. I don't know, there may be people in this room that have Jewish heritage, but most of you would be Gentiles. The Bible always thought of Gentiles as an inferior race. So Jews were God's chosen people. They were the people with whom God made the covenant with Abraham back uh, in Genesis chapter 12. It was to the Jews that that God gave the law. It was to the Jews that God promised a Messiah who would rescue the world. And even though the Jews understood that in some way Messiah's rescue of the world would encompass Gentiles, it was unthinkable to the Jews that Gentiles could ever be equal to Jews. Like Gentiles, we we were second-class citizens. And even after Christ's death and resurrection, you can see this uh, in some of the battles that, fo- that Paul fights in the New Testament. There were these people that were known as, uh, they were called uh, Judaizers. And they taught that if Gentiles wanted to believe in Christ, that's fine. But still, if you wanted to be saved, you had to obey the Mosaic Law. In other words, you essentially had to become a Jew to be saved. You know, a convert Jew to be saved. Look, believing in Christ is fine, they said. Great, yeah, okay, believe in Christ, but you've got to obey the law. You've got to obey the Mosaic law if you want to be saved. But, but Paul, all the way through the New Testament, in all of his epistles, he keeps punching back at that. And he says, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, are saved by faith in Christ alone. Uh, theologians throughout the ages have called that Uh, Sola fide, in other words, uh, faith alone. You're saved by faith alone, not by obeying the Mosaic law. And this was stunning. This was was a mind-blowing revelation uh, to the Jews. One, that you were saved by faith in Christ alone and not obedience to the law. But second, that Jews and Gentiles could possibly be equal. This took away the moral superiority of the Jews. Uh, This was stunning to the Jews. This was even heretical to many people. The only way that I can compare it so that you might kind of get a sense of how heretical this was would be to challenge you to think about pictures in your mind that you have seen of like some of the fighting in the streets in the South uh, during the 60s, during the civil rights movement, you know. It was that kind of uh, violent reaction that some of the Jews had to this gospel that made Jews and Gentiles equal. Paul says, it's, it's a, it, Paul says the gospel was a mystery that Jews and Gentiles would come together. God had never said anything about that in the Old Testament. And now all of a sudden, here it is. This is one of the ramifications, one of the impl- implications, I should say, of the gospel is that Jews and Gentiles come together. They're alike. They're one in Christ. There's no superiority, no inferiority. 
And you're like, okay, uh, again, what does that have to do with marriage? When Paul writes that marriage is a profound mystery, when he says it's a profound mystery, what he's saying is that he sees the same concepts at work in marriage that he sees at work in the gospel. In other words, marriage and Christ's relationship to the church run parallel to each other. They work on the same principles. And what I want to do in the, in the next few minutes is I, I want to give you three principles that are the same in marriage that you would see in the gospel. Okay, so, so the gospel works like this, and marriage works just like that. And I want to show you these three principles. So here's the first one. Just as you are saved by grace, okay, so the gospel says you're saved by grace, okay? just as you are saved by grace, your marriage must operate on the basis of grace. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, let me explain it to you this way. Um, just like salvation, you can either try to base your marriage on works or you can base your marriage on grace. Now, a marriage based on works says, as long as you meet my needs, I will stay committed to you. That's a marriage based on works. As long as you meet my needs, I'm in. You stop meeting my needs, I'm out. That's a marriage based on works. And if you uh, were to study the background of the New Testament, the history in which the New Testament was written in, that's exactly how men approached marriage in that day. In that pagan culture, wives were treated like servants. They were able to be discarded, and they were able to be thrown away for anything from burning her husband's toast to just getting old. And there was no way for a woman to survive financially uh, if that happened. Now, I want you to just imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine the fear and the pressure that a wife in that day would feel about having to make sure everything is just right so that her husband would never throw her out on the street. Now, I want to ask you this. How much love exists in a marriage where there's that kind of pressure? How much love exists in that marriage that's based on works? Uh, not much. Because a marriage that is based on works, just like, just like if you try to base your salvation on works, a marriage based on works creates duty and fear and pressure and guilt and anxiety and even resentment. But one thing that it never creates is love. Salvation based on works doesn't create love for Christ or love for God. And a marriage based on works can't create love for a spouse. Just like salvation, it can create pressure and duty and fear and guilt and anxiety and resentment, but it doesn't create love. And so Paul says, Paul says, well, okay, you know, look, it, it's just like marriage is just, it operates just like the gospel. You can base it on works or you can base it on grace. If you base it on works, there'll never be love. And likely it won't survive. It'll never become all that it could be. But on the other hand, he says you can base a marriage on grace. And here's a marriage based on grace says this. It says, 
I will stay committed to you whether you meet my needs or not. You see the difference? I mean, a marriage based on work says, says, as long as you meet my needs, I'm in. A marriage based on grace says, I'm in whether you meet my needs or not. You see, a marriage based on grace says, says, it says look, I know you're going to hurt me, and I know you're going to disappoint me, and I know you're going to need forgiven. And look, I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to disappoint you, and I'm going to need forgiven. But a marriage based on grace says, when you fail, when you blow it, I'll forgive you instead of punishing you and berating you. Because there is. And here, here's, here's why. Here's, here's what characterizes a marriage that's based on grace. And by the way, it's the same thing that characterizes Christ's love for us. Here's why that works in a marriage based on grace. It's because a marriage based on grace has a love that is prior to repentance. Do you understand the significance of that? There's a love that is prior to repentance. And that's the same way Christ loves us. See, in a marriage based on works, love comes after repentance. Uh, You repent well enough and you grovel enough and you accept enough of my punishment and berating for what you did to me, then I will love you again. But in a marriage based on grace, there is this love that is always prior to repentance, which is exactly how Christ loves us. And if he didn't love us in that way, we would have no hope. If there were no love prior to repentance, we would have no hope. There's a pastor and an author, his name is Eugene Peterson, and he he once wrote this. I love how he says this. He says, all the persons of faith that I know are sinners and doubters and uneven performers. Man, does that include you? Because it does me. Does that describe you? It describes me. He says, all the persons of faith I know are sinners and doubters and uneven performers. He says, we are secure in our faith, not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that Christ is sure of us. You see, what he's saying is that even when I fail, I know that Christ has a love for me that comes prior to my repentance. And so you can see why Paul, he keeps moving back and forth between marriage and Christ's relationship with his church. Because the same principles of grace that work in terms of your salvation with the gospel is what gives marriage security and hope and intimacy. You have that because of grace in your salvation. And he says you can, you can base a marriage on works if you want, but it's not going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. Or you can base it on grace. And you base it on grace, and there is love and security and hope and intimacy. Okay? So he says there's this, this marriage is a mystery, uh, just like the gospel's a mystery, in the sense that you're not saved by works, and your marriage won't be saved by works either. It'll be saved by grace, as you show each other grace in your marriage. Second principle that, I, I, that he wants to get across, and this is, I talked about this a little bit last week, but let me, let me say it this way, that just as Gentiles became equal to Jews as a result of the cross, so wives are equal to their husbands. 
result of the cross was that Jews and Gentiles became equal to one another. In, in the same way, wives are equal to their husbands as a result of the cross. As I said, I know I talked about this last week, so I don't have to linger here, but Paul maintained that the cross of Jesus Christ was the great equalizer of the human race, that anyone who felt morally superior to another person had only to look at the broken, bloodied, and crucified Messiah on the cross to see that there's no basis for any moral superiority of one person to another. Nobody was more valuable than another. Paul says it very explicitly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Listen to this. He says it very clearly. He says, as a result of the cross, there is neither, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus. In other words, the same way that Jews and Gentiles all come together and are equalized by the cross of Christ, so husbands and wives are made equal as a result of the cross. Now, I talked last week about the fact that they don't have the same roles. Husbands and wives don't play the same roles in marriage. There are different roles. There are different responsibilities. But neither is superior to the other. And I want you to understand how profoundly cross-cultural this was, what Paul is saying at that point in human history. Women at that point in human history were largely oppressed. They were illiterate. They were largely uneducated. Their value was based primarily on the pleasure that they could give their husband at any given moment in time. They had few options. They, they Virtually no economic opportunity. They were discriminated against. They had no vote. They had no rights. And it's against that backdrop that Paul says, no, as a result of the gospel, women are equal to men in value. And so he says to these husbands, he says, love your wives sacrificially and courageously. And then did you get this? Did you notice this as we've read through this text all these weeks? I'll bet you haven't noticed this. He refers to the collection of believers. He says he refers to the local church Did you see how he refers to it? Did you see how he personifies the local church? Did you see what gender he gives the local church? He calls it a her. And he does it four times in this text. Maybe five. I haven't counted. He says it a lot of times. He says, says, the church, he calls the local church a woman. He says it's a her. For Christ gave himself up for her, he says. And in that moment, when he does that, when he calls the local church a her, in that moment, Paul shocked the Christian world, and he shocked the pagan world, and he stabbed a dagger right in the heart of misogyny and sexism. And forever the status and dignity of women would be elevated in a way that nothing in human history has ever done since, and it never can in the future. No job, uh, no career, uh, nothing. No political office can ever elevate the status and the dignity of women in the manner that Paul just did when he said that the local church is a her. Now, that's nothing against careers and jobs and and, and, uh, status and politics. I'm all for that uh, for women. I'm just saying... Don't, ladies, don't ever think that that stuff gives you dignity in the way that Paul calling the local church a her gives you. In that moment, he elevated you like nothing ever can. Let me tell you something. I, 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 okay, little, just a little personal thing here. I am so tired of hearing 
people say that Christianity and the scriptures and the Apostle Paul is so oppressive to women. Look, all I want to say is read the Bible and see. And I can't take responsibility for people who don't read the Bible. I can't take responsibility for what uh, every knucklehead on TV says about what the Bible says about women. All I can do is point you to what the scriptures say about women. And I can tell you that Paul was profoundly countercultural when he says, Husbands, love your wives sacrificially and courageously because the local church, it's a her. It's a she. You can see, this is why Paul keeps going back and forth between marriage and Christ's love for the church. He says the same principles are at work in marriage that are at work uh, in the gospel. Just as Christ's cross equalized Jews and Gentiles, so it equalizes husbands and wives. Uh, No one is superior to anybody else. And then third, this is the last thing. He says, just as salvation is accomplished because you know this is how it's a mystery just as salvation is accomplished by Christ's servanthood so your marriage must be marked by servanthood that's part of the mystery of marriage it's just like same principles are at work in marriage they're at work in the gospel do you understand this Just as salvation is accomplished by Christ's servanthood, so your marriage must be marked by servanthood. Think about this for just a moment. Paul has explained in this passage that men are head of their wives. I covered that in the weeks that most of you weren't here, uh, that Paul is head of the wives. And 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 he says that wives are equal to their husbands. Now you just think about that. Without Christ, you tell me, Without Christ in the relationship, don't you think that that has ugly written all over it? Men demanding authority. Woman, don't you know I'm the head of the family? And women flouting their new status. I am woman, hear me roar. Paul says the local church is a woman and and I've been elevated and I've been given dignity and status. And and, oh, no, you didn't. And, and, you know, uh, all of that stuff. And you got two people without Christ who are going head to head and just banging at each other. Which is why Paul starts this passage at verse 21 the way he starts it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, because of what Christ did for you, That's how the gospel works. Christ did something for you that you could never do for yourself. Because of what Christ did for you, don't demand and don't claim your rights. The secret to a great marriage isn't self-exaltation and entitlement. The secret to a great marriage is the same thing that's a secret to the gospel. It's servanthood. Jesus emptied himself of the rights and privileges of heaven, and he became a servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And so you do likewise. You see how the same principles are at work in marriage as they are in the gospel. And see, we've come full circle now. We end exactly where we began. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
We've been saying it through this series, that the cross changes everything. That's kind of our slogan for our church. It's our tagline, that the cross changes everything, even marriage. Do you see that? The cross changes even marriage. I'm not slinging guilt here in what I'm going to say. This is not my point. It is not to sling guilt in what I'm going to say. But what I want you to understand, and I hope you get this as a result of this series, is that what Paul is saying is that marriage reveals the mystery of the gospel in a, in a unique way. And what that means is that marriage is a high-stake proposition and that it is not to be entered into lightly. And when you enter into a marriage... You need to understand that your marriage isn't just about the two of you anymore. Whether you have kids or not, your marriage is not just about the two of you anymore. Even more important than your kids, the name of Christ is on the line in your marriage. The gospel is on the line. And the rest of your relational world is seeing the reality of the gospel played out in your marriage or not. Now, as I said, I'm not trying to sling guilt. You, maybe you've been a part of a marriage and it didn't work. And maybe, maybe that had something to do with you. And if it did have something to do with you, know this. That Christ's forgiveness extends to you. On the other hand, maybe you were part of a marriage and it didn't work and it wasn't because you didn't want it to work and it's not because you didn't try. It's because you had a spouse that just didn't care about your marriage. Know this, that Christ knows that. But understand, men and women, understand husbands and wives, that the reality of the gospel is being played out in your marriage. This is why Paul keeps saying that marriage, man, it's a mystery. He keeps flipping back and forth between marriage and the gospel because the same principles are at work in the gospel as they are in marriage. I hope I've encouraged you in this series that there is hope for your marriage. No matter where it is today, no matter how bad it may feel today, there's hope for your marriage. And I hope I'm encouraging that no matter how good your marriage may be today, that wherever it goes in the future and whatever things you go through in the future, that there is hope for your marriage. I hope I've, hope I've encouraged you in this series that if you have problems in your marriage, that you're not the only one, that everybody has problems in their marriage because all of us come into marriage with baggage and self-centeredness. We're all broken, so we all have problems in our marriage. Everybody does. I hope I've encouraged you in that, and I hope that you, I've encouraged you that you can talk about that. But what I want you to really walk away with is that the power of the gospel is at work, and it can heal your marriage, and it can make you make your marriage thrive. I want you to get that. That's where Paul pointed us all through this series. He pointed us to Christ. He pointed us to the gospel, and he said the cross of Christ changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, 
we often come uh, on a Sunday morning and we wonder what in the world the scriptures could possibly say to us and how they could possibly be relevant and applicable to our lives. And we are reminded through a passage like this that the gospel, uh, the cross of Christ changes everything. And that it applies to every aspect of our lives, even our marriages. And Lord, I suspect that there are people here today that as they hear this, they wonder, you know, could it make any difference in my marriage? I pray that you would encourage them that, yes, it it, it can. Lord, I pray that we would walk away today with a sense of the gravity of marriage, of how significant you consider marriage to be, a sense that the stakes are very high, but also a sense that our marriages can display the power of the gospel at work in two broken human people's lives. And that through that, through our weakness, that you, your name, is glorified. And so, our Lord, we do glorify you now. We thank you that you speak to us truth through your word. There is no other name, no other name, by which people are saved and by which marriages are saved other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we worship and pray.